All right, so uh, we're going to finish the book of Acts. Today is the final day, and then next year, right after Easter, we'll pick up in chapter 3. Uh, we're going to teach through the book of Acts. We're going to take a portion of it uh, every year right after Easter up until around this time, just before school starts, and we're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. So uh, this is our 11th sermon. We find ourselves finishing out Acts chapter 2. Remember all the incredible things that happened throughout the entire New Testament uh, really have their beginning right here in Acts 2. It's where the church uh, had its inception. It's on the day of Pentecost, 120 believers in the upper room. Acts 2, 1 through 4, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to pray in this heavenly language. And then there were all these worshipers in Jerusalem at that time for the Feast of Pentecost. Over 200,000 would come in during that period of time of the year. They gathered outside the upper room, and then Peter stands up, and he preaches the first sermon post-Pentecost. And it was such a powerful message. We walked, we walked through that message a few weeks ago. 3,000 people were added to the church that day. So Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is recording all these incredible things that, that were happening, all the things Peter was saying and the instruction that was coming from the Holy Spirit through the apostles at that time. And so the way the, the Acts chapter 2 concludes is this way. Let's go to Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued in meeting together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege that we have to study your word. Lord, I thank you that uh, everyone is here today by divine design. There's something that has already happened or will happen by the conclusion of this service that will bring blessing into their life. I thank you that we're in a good place today, Lord. Our minds are, are unfettered, our hearts are clear from burdens, and we're here ready to receive the engrafted word which is able to bring healing and hope and salvation and wholeness into our souls. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit through the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus, we pray and ask this. And everyone said, amen and amen. There's a term that many of you have heard before, and it's applied to superior athletes who find themselves at their most optimal point of performance. When an athlete is able to reach their optimal point of performance, many commentators and many people describe that as they have entered the zone. How many have ever heard that term before? They are in the zone. And the zone is, is actually scientifically has been studied and researched by some experts out there. And it's an extraordinary dimension. Take, for example, in baseball. Uh, when a batter goes up to uh, the batter's box and they are in the zone, they have no problem hitting that ball because it looks like a watermelon as it's coming across the plate. And some of you that have played baseball, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, in basketball, uh, a player is in the zone when after they've received a hard foul, they're able to walk up to the foul line and they're able to sink both free throws because the basket actually looks like a hula hoop because they're in the zone. In golf, 
Every swing, when somebody's in the zone, every swing is effortless. Every ball is straight and true, which means for me, all the times I've played golf, I've never been in the zone. You know, my golf game is so bad, I probably have gone 100 miles per hour in my car more times than I've shot under 100 on the golf course. Okay, that was a joke. It didn't go over too well. Uh, I'm not advocating that at all. But think of Michael Jordan. Think of Joe Montana. Think of uh, Floyd Mayweather. Think of some of the most elite athletes that, that are out there or that have ever lived. These are individuals that knew how to enter into that zone. And all of these athletes found this extraordinary place of optimal performance. It's also known as the sweet spot. It's referred to as the sweet spot or the flow or the effortless present. Now, take, for example, an illustration from baseball. I, I did bring a baseball bat with me uh, today, and uh, thank you, Barry. Uh, no, we didn't practice that. It was just in the moment, and I, I'm glad I caught it. But anyway, <laughs> I, I brought a baseball bat with me today to help illustrate some, some powerful truths today. Uh, and this is a great tool for illustration. You know, too bad we've already taken up the offering because this would be a great, you know, motivator. Just, you sure you want to give that? How about a little more? Anyway, uh, in baseball, and, 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 and on, a, on a baseball bat, there's, call, there's what's called the sweet spot, okay? Now, how many of you have uh, played baseball before? Raise your hand, okay? Softball, all right? Uh, baseball is not my sport, okay? I stunk at, at baseball. But how many of you have ever hit a home run? You've hit, at, whether Little League or softball, you've hit a home run. Raise your hand. We've got ladies raising their hand. I mean, I'm embarrassed. Congratulations, okay? You're better than me. But they say, I don't know this, I mean, I've hit singles, doubles, triples, and struck out a lot when I tried this sport, but uh, they say that every bat has a sweet spot, and if you'll hit the ball, perfect timing, if you'll hit the ball on the sweet spot of the bat, you'll launch that, that bad boy out of the park. And if you don't, if you don't hit the ball on the sweet spot of the bat, it'll vibrate, and you will feel it in your, in your hands. It's quite, it's quite painful. You know, life has a sweet spot. Marriage has a sweet spot that you want to be able to hone in. You want to be able to find that sweet spot in your marriage to where you're not working against each other, you're working with each other. There's, there's harmony, okay? You're making music together. You have found the sweet spot, the sweet spot of your marriage, the sweet spot of living. In business, you know, you've got to find your sweet spot, what you are better than your competition at, whether it's a particular service or a particular product. And you don't want to be distracted from what your contribution, what your value proposition may be to the community that you find yourself in. All of life has that sweet spot. And the early church, the early church, they were in the zone. Uh, the early church really found the sweet spot of living, uh, of practicing their faith. Because you see, not only does this principle apply to sports or business or the arts, you see, there are musicians who know how to enter that zone, that effortless present, the flow, where they are in the flow, and it's, it's as though that instrument has life of its own, the way it's being played. It's when somebody reaches their, their optimal performance. And that's what was happening here in the book of Acts. And we're going to find out how that happened. Let's talk a little bit more about what it means to find that sweet spot in life. You know, they, they say there are four levels of learning, four levels of learning. Apply to anything in life that you have presently learned or anything in the future that you will need to learn uh, to go to the next level 
in your own life. Four levels of learning. Learning. Let me give them to you. The first level is level one. It's called unconscious incompetence. All learning starts at this level called unconscious incompetence. You are unconscious to how incompetent you are at something. Everything starts there, whether it's learning how to ride a bike, uh, learning how to type on a typewriter, learning how to play an instrument. You know, how many, some, how many of us sometimes will look at others and will think, I could do what they're doing. That doesn't look too hard. And then you start doing it, and you realize you move out of that unconscious incompetence. And in that level one, it's I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. But then level two of learning is conscious incompetence. You actually become conscious at how incompetent you are at something. I remember when I preached my very first sermon, I was unconscious to my incompetence until I finished the sermon. And then I moved into level two, and I realized I became conscious of how incompetent I was at the skill and the art of communication. Level two is, now I know what I don't no. And then there's level three of learning. You reach level three, and it's conscious competence. Remember when you first started learning how to drive a car? You became consciously competent at driving a car, which means all of your focus was on you're making sure your hand's 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and watching the mirrors and, and the pedals and the traffic, and you were just consciously competent. Because now you've reached level three of learning, uh, which at level three of learning, I know what I know. But then there's that level four of learning, and it's called unconscious competence. Unconscious competence. Now, this sometimes is called the flow state. It's by, by uh, psychologist Mihail Zikmahaly. He wrote about this in his research, and I'm quoting from him. In a state of flow... Emotion and thought are not competing. They are supporting each other synergistically, allowing for higher levels of energy and more focus. So that's like the scientific definition or description of what it means to enter that zone, that unconscious competence. I'm aware, uh, I'm not aware and yet I know. So let me give you an example on this. How many of you have, because you've been driving for so many years, and you have kind of the beaten path, the routine of getting from point A to point B, whether it's from home to work, home to school, home to church. You've done it so often, so frequently, the same path. How many of you have jumped in your car and you've left point A to get to point B, and when you arrive at point B, you're like, whoa, did I, did I stop at every stop sign? Did I stop at every stoplight? How many of you find yourself driving at, at times and you were in that unconscious competence? You weren't paying attention 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, look at the mirrors, you know. I mean, it was just you were in the flow. You know what I'm talking about? You were kind of in the zone. Now, according to some drivers here in Lubbock, you know, they're too much in the zone. They are like zoned out. That's a different sermon, okay? Uh, you could be cooking, you could be do, playing an instrument, you could be playing a sport, you could be at work, and there are times when you're in this effortless, this flow state, this effortless present, and, and, and thought and emotion are not competing, they're working together. I mean, those of you that have ever done public speaking or those of you that have ever preached a sermon, you know when you are at level three, you're in that uh, conscious 
competence because you're, you're, you're struggling to make sure, oh, i got to get to this point, and it's kind of mechanical, and there's not the flow, and there's not the easiness, and, and you know, you're thinking too much, and you're trying too hard, and it's kind of like uh, some advice that I got that I received from a basketball coach a long time ago. Uh, you know, I was playing point guard, and, and he, he said, um, quit forcing the game. Quit forcing the game. And he said something very wise. He said, let the game come to you. You know, uh, be cool, calm, collected, and let the game come to you. And uh, anytime you're doing something, when you're at level four and you reach that zone or that flow, you're, it, it's not, it's like effortless, it's that effortless presence. You're, you're in it, but you're not trying to make it happen. It's kind of like you're, you're riding the wave of, of making it happen. And, and it's kind of, the moment's carrying you instead of you trying to carry the moment. Now, none of this happens. Great athletes and great musicians don't just get up, jump out of bed, and perform at optimal performance. How many know it takes hard work? I mean, you can't just pick up a golf club and, uh, you know, for the first time and hit below par. That's not going to happen. Because perfect practice makes perfect performance. I want to say that again. Perfect practice makes perfect performance. I read a book some time ago called Talent Overrated. And the big takeaway for me in this book that I read is whenever we look at highly talented, gifted people, athletes, musicians, business people, whatever, and we look at them, sometimes we exonerate or excuse our own mediocrity in our own life because when we compare ourselves to them, we simply say, well, they have a gift from God. They have a spark from the divine. They're just like the super talented among us. Now, granted, there are people that have raw ability and raw talent that God has given them. But they didn't reach that superstar level of performance by accident. The truly great ones among us, they have to work at it, and they have to practice at it, and they're committed to a routine because they understand perfect practice makes perfect performance, which is why professionals build routine and repetition into their highly disciplined lives. Dr. Richard Keith, director of sports psychology at Duke University, explores this phenomenon in a book called, that he wrote many years ago, On the Sweet Spot, Stalking the Effortless Present. And he says this. This is very interesting. He says, the more you do something, the more the brain changes to devote its energy to that function. I want to read it again. The more you do something, the more the brain changes to devote its energy to that particular function. The neurons in your brain begin to fire in a way that creates this flawless mechanical motion. That's why practice, intentional practice is so important. In that book that I mentioned a moment ago, Talent Overrated, what they discovered is this. Those who reach the Olympian status of optimal performance, the superstars among us, they had one thing in common. And the one thing in common that they all had, they all had over 10,000 hours of intentional practice that they had in the routine of their life that allowed them to reach that next level of performance. You know, church, if you want to reach that next level of spiritual optimal performance in your life, if you want to experience a breakthrough, if you want to go to that next level, you are going to have to have perfect practice 
which makes perfect performance. We're going to have to build the routines and repetitions in our lives of living highly disciplined lives so that we could go to that next level. And that's what the early church did. They had what these super athletes had, this sustained, intentional focus. You know, they say the greatest golfers out there, before they ever reach the first tee box, They've already, in their mind, mentally, they've already played that entire course shot by shot, hole by hole. They say the great pitchers that are in baseball today, before they ever show up to the ballpark, they have already, in their mind's eye, they've already faced down every hitter that they're going to be facing based on the stats and the strengths and weaknesses of that hitter, and they've already, in their mind's eye, they've already thrown pitches to strike that particular batter out. The the secret of optimal performance is having this intentional practice, this sustained focus in our lives. What if we applied that to church? What if on Sunday morning we got up just a little bit extra early and we began to warm ourselves up to get into the zone. You know what I'm talking about? What if we said, you know what? We're going to be, we're going to get to church on time today. We're going to start there, amen, because we're going to get in the zone. And what if in our mind's eye and in our heart, we're kind of preparing our heart that as soon as worship starts, we're not going to take two or three songs to get warmed up. Soon as the worship starts, man, we're going to enter in and we're going to give it our all. We're going to worship God with all of our heart. No holding back. We're not just going to stand there and be observers. We're going to be engaged, and we're going to be worshipers. And then what if, before we ever showed up at church, you're like, okay. And when pastor brings the lumber, when he brings the word, I see great preachers, you know, compared to baseball, not only do you need a great pitcher, but you need a great catcher. Right? In baseball, you not only need great pitchers, you need great catchers. And in preaching, you don't just need a good preacher, you need good catchers out there that are catching the message. Are you with me? Are your mitts up? Are you ready? Are you, are you looking down the, 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 the line here to receive that pitch? What if we said, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going I'm to listen intently and I'm going to say, God, how does this apply to me? I'm not going to let my mind wander. Oh, what time is lunch? What are we going to have for lunch? You know, what preseason football game is on today? Is there one on? You know, what's, that? what's going on in the movies? Blah, blah, blah. What's happening on Facebook? Um, some of you are looking right now. Look at me. <laughs> You're not in the zone. You're not anywhere near the zone. Practice and sustain focus around five areas. Look at Acts 2.42. It says, they devoted themselves. Stop there. They what? Devoted. First of all, they, they who? Who are we talking about? Who, who are the, who's the they that's being mentioned here in this verse? Who's the they? The early church. 3,120 of them. Remember? There was 120 in, in, the, in the upper room that filled the Holy Spirit. Peter preached. 3,000 were added. So 3,120. It says they, the early Christians, devoted themselves. Everybody say devoted themselves. The uh, King James translation of the Bible right here in this verse says, they continued steadfastly. They continued steadfastly. Or this translation, they devoted themselves. I looked up that word devoted. It's a, it's a, it's a complicated compound word in the Greek language. And here's what it means. It means they were strong toward. To be devoted as an athlete, as a student, as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, uh, as, a, as a business person, 
Uh, to be devoted in any pursuit in life, it means this. It means you're strong toward something or someone. To be truly devoted, to be truly devoted in life means you are strong toward. Now, in our country today and in our culture today, there are a lot of people devoted to a lot of things. A lot they shouldn't be. But as Christ followers, we have to look at our life and say, how devoted am I? On a scale of 1 to 10, how serious do I take my faith? You see, God's called all of us to be spiritual giants. We'll probably never reach that status, this side of heaven, but it doesn't mean that we're not striving to be a spiritual giant for Jesus. We all have good days. We all have bad days. We all shoot for the target, but at times we miss the target because nobody but nobody bats a 1,000, right? I mean, sometimes in life we swing, and we strike out. My problem in baseball and golf is I would treat a baseball like a golf club, and I would treat, I would treat a golf club like a baseball bat, okay? Sometimes in life, you know, we, we give our best, and we walk back to the dugout of life, and we've struck out once again. But we don't give up on life. We don't give up on the game, you know. We, we just, there'll be another day. But we don't stop striving because we're Say it with me, devoted. Say that, devoted. Look at your neighbor and say, you look devoted. Come on, you look devoted. <laughs> and we need to be devoted to what the early church was devoted to. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and breaking of bread and to prayer. And then everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together, and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he needed. So let's look at what the early church was devoted to in closing. Just to make sure, let's check in today, church. Let's check in to make sure that we also are devoted like they were devoted. Not perfect, but devoted. Number one, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. To be in that spiritual zone, to be in that effortless present, to be in the flow of the Spirit of God in your life and in my life, to find the sweet spot of our faith where we're no longer trying in, in our own effort, in our own strength, because the, the, the prophet says, not by power, not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Uh, where we're ceasing from our own labors and we're trusting in the labor and the work of Christ. And if we're going to really answer into that spiritual zone, we need to be devoted, number one, to the apostles' teaching. We must be devoted to the Word of God. Now, specifically, Luke calls it the apostles' teaching, as Peter used it, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, because we need to know that we build our faith not on the opinions of men, not on the doctrines of religion or the doctrines of churches or the doctrines of denominations. We build our faith on the ultimate absolute truth and authority of Holy Scripture as was taught by the apostles. The original apostles, Peter, James, John, and the apostle Paul. That's why we know our faith is true and our faith is sure and our foundation is strong because we're building our faith on the teaching of the apostles, which is an emphasis not only of the entirety of Scripture, but the New Testament in particular. And here's what one of the apostles himself said. Look at Colossians 3.16, one of my favorite verses. Here's what Paul said. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you to what degree? Richly. 
richly, not, not, not poorly, but richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, uh, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we want the word of God to dwell in our hearts richly. So you know what? Perfect practice makes perfect performance. We've got to build a godly routine in our life of making sure that we are having uh, consistent doses of the word of God that we are taking into our heart and soul. And that means we're committed, not out of religion, not out of duty, but church, we're committed to be in God's word regularly. And my, my challenge to you, because it's the challenge that I've, uh, that I've been trying to live out over the last uh, uh, five years, is to read through the Bible in its entirety in a year. And so I just started, uh, once again, going through the Bible. I just finished it up this past uh, July, and then I started over. You know, I go to the Bible, the Bible app, keeps track of what reading every day that you need to be reading. I can select different reading plans. I can select different translations uh, to read it. And so now I'm reading, I just finished reading Exodus, and now I'm in the book of Leviticus. And, uh, you know, I read, it, I read the portion I was supposed to read for today. And I could, I could justify and say, you know what, God, I did a lot of studying for this message, and I already studied Acts 1 and Acts 2, and, and I've already got my Bible time in. But no, that's for the sermon. What about for me? So we need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Jesus said in John 8, 31, 32, Jesus said to those Jews which believed in him, if you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So it's, it's a continuation, church. Uh, it's a continuation that we are devoted, we're strong toward the apostles' teaching. That means we're in church regularly, consistently. This is a routine. This is a routine that we're committed to. You know, we want to get in our 10,000 hours plus of studying God's Word, right? Because then we're going to reach that optimal level of spiritual output and performance. And all of God's people said, Amen. look to your neighbor and say, I know you are strong toward the Word of God. Go on. I know you are strong toward the Word of God. And we need to today more than ever. Man, it grieves my heart to see what's going on in our, our culture and our society today. It grieves me to, to hear what's happening amongst many Christians today. They're losing sight. They're getting their eye off the ball. They just are. Uh, there's a, a well-known famous worship leader and, and musician who, uh, in an article just the other day, said that he did not believe in the story of Noah. He didn't take it literally because he believes in science. And I'm like, you've been watching too much Nacho Libre, you know? Remember Nacho Libre asked his friend, you believe in God? I don't believe in God, I believe in science. You know, remember that? Anyway, I'm like, you can believe in science in the Bible too, hello? He says, you don't take the entirety of God's word literally. Excuse me? I mean, excuse me? I mean, uh, it's been, the, the story of Noah has been affirmed by Peter. That's the, that's the doctrine of the, the teaching of the apostles. Peter referenced Noah as though it, it actually literally happened. And, and here's what this, this worship leader, and I don't condemn him, but I'm like, dude, are you, are you kidding me? You know, like, what, where do you go to church? What have you been studying? He, and he said this, he said, I don't mean to offend, and he used a label. Be careful with labels. He said, I don't, need, I don't mean to offend all of you fundamentalists. Fundamentalists. When somebody calls you a fundamentalist, you need to tell them everybody's a fundamentalist. Because we all have fundamentals that we believe and are non-negotiable. And one of the fundamentals to our Christian faith is we believe in the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Thank you very much. And we're not going to back down on that. We're not going to begin to take this out and take this out and take until we have nothing left. 
So uh, if somebody calls you a fundamentalist, it's not a dirty word, you know, take it as a badge of honor, okay? Because there are the fundamentals to our faith that we must believe in that are non-negotiables. Number two, we need to be devoted to fellowship. Fellowship. Now, we might think, you know, uh, adding friends on Facebook uh, and communicating with friends on Facebook is fellowship. It's not. It's something, but it's not, it's not that. We might think being a part of a bowling league is fellowship. Nothing wrong with being a part of a bowling league, but that's not New Testament fellowship. We, we might think being a part of the Rotary Club or the Lions Club is, is fellowship. That's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not New Testament fellowship. The Bible says that the early disciples, the early Christians, they were devoted to, number one, the apostles' teachings, and number two, to the fellowship. The word fellowship is an interesting word. It's a beautiful word in the Greek language in the Bible, the New Testament, because the New Testament was written in Greek, which was the known Koine Greek, which is the known language of that day. God's, in, God's concerned about getting his message out, so he takes the known language of that day to communicate his truth through. So the Bible was written in Koine Greek and then was translated later into English. Sometimes we lose the meaning of what that word is from Greek to English. So this word fellowship is the Greek word kononia. It's a beautiful word in the Greek language. And it means belonging together in something. Belonging together in something. As Christians, we have fellowship because our fellowship is with the Lord and with his son and with one another. The bond that ties us together is the strongest bond known in, this, in all of God's creation, which is the bond of Jesus Christ. Here's how John says it in 1 John 3, uh, 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have, say that word with me, fellowship with us, and truly, say that word with me, our fellowship is with the Father, our kononia, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What, what substantiates true New Testament biblical fellowship is that we're all in relationship with the Lord and with one another. You see, what we're experiencing here in church is the apostles' teaching and fellowship. What we experience in our life groups is we are experiencing this spiritual kononia. And in Philippians 2.1, Paul calls it fellowship of the Spirit. And so what I'm saying here is true kononia, true fellowship in your life, and we all need it because God created us to be in relationship with Him and with each other. True fellowship is a spiritual thing, and it happens through the Holy Spirit as we are living out our faith in a community of faith with one another. We need to be devoted to that. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, how devoted have you been lately to the apostles' teaching? Number two, how devoted are you to true New Testament biblical fellowship. I know so many loved ones, friends, family members who profess to be Christians, and I don't doubt that they are, but they're not in a church. They're not in a church. You know, there are about 30 admonitions of the Bible. I remember reading this in that uh, book that Rick Warren wrote, uh, The Purpose Driven Life. Or excuse me, the first book, The Purpose Driven Church. He's talking about the importance of church, and he said, you know, there are like 30 admonitions in the New Testament that if you're not in a local fellowship with other believers, you cannot fulfill in your own life. Salvation is not a private transaction. It's not just a private transaction. We don't just live our faith out in solitary. We live out our faith with one another, and we need to be in relationship with one another. The third thing that they were devoted to was worship. Now, the term worship isn't used there, but what is used is a description of what worship is. In a church service, what do you experience? A 
apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, which is talking about communion, which we do every Sunday here. You can partake of communion at the, at the uh, prayer rails. And then the third Sunday of every month, we do it corporately together because that's a part of our faith tradition. It's not just some religious thing that we do. It is a spiritual experience when we together partake of the, and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's what, it's what binds us spiritually together around the Lord's table. It's a beautiful, beautiful expression of God's love among us when we break bread. Prayer. You know, uh, what's interesting is uh, prayer is mentioned in one form or another ten times in the Gospel of Matthew. Twelve times in Mark. Five times in John. But Luke mentions it 19 times in his gospel, the gospel of Luke. But get this, prayer in some form or fashion is mentioned 32 times throughout the book of Acts. The question once again is, how devoted, if we want to be in the zone, if we want to find the sweet spot of our walk with Christ, of our faith, then we need to be strong toward, we need to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, Prayer, and the final thing, giving. Look at verse 44 and 45. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Now what you need to know about this verse is, you can't base your theology on this one section of Scripture. Because what's being said here, listen, it's descriptive, it's not prescriptive. It's telling us exactly how it happened and what happened. But it's not telling us that this is what we all must do. Why is it descriptive and not prescriptive? Is because it's never mentioned again in the Bible. And we're never admonished in the Bible to do it exactly this way. But in the first, the first century Christians did it this way as they were led by the Holy Spirit. Because great persecution was about to break out. And there was going to be a great dispersing of Christians. They had to flee because of persecution that was going to occur. So the most wise and practical thing was for them to huddle together. And it's almost like living in a commune, almost. And they sold their possessions willingly. Now here's what you need to know about God. God believes in your individual personal right to ownership and property. God believes in that to such an extent... He put a commandment in the Ten Commandments that says, thou shalt not steal. What does that mean? That means what you have, you own under God, and I have no right to take it away from you unless you voluntarily give it to me. And if I take it away from you without you voluntarily giving it to me, it's called stealing. I think there's a lot of stealing going on in our country right now. You know what I'm talking about? So God believes in personal rights and, and the right to personal property. Just two chapters later, in Acts 5, there's a story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were struck dead in church. I can't wait to study that here next year maybe. Why were they struck dead in church? Oh, because they didn't give an offering to the Lord. No, 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 no. The reason they were struck dead in church is because they sold their property, and it was their property. And they said they were going to give it all to the Lord's work, and they sold their, it was their property, not the churches, not the governments, their property. They sold it all. And they said they were going to give it all to the church. And what they did, what caused them to receive the death penalty is they lied about it. It's not that they didn't give it all. It's that they promised to give it all and they didn't. So I'm saying all of that because some Christians and some faith traditions have actually advocated communism, that the Bible endorses 
communism or socialism based on these two verses, and that is a great, gross misinterpretation of what's being said here. They were givers, and they were generous. So the question is, once again, are you strong toward, are you devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and giving? And if we'll all be devoted and strong toward those, those things, here's what ends up happening. Number four, growth or evangelism takes place. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Church family, when we get into the spiritual zone and we are, we are reaching our optimal performance in Christ, not in our own strength, but in his strength, and when you and I are finding the sweet spot of our faith and living out our faith as a community of faith, as a church, then what happens is we allow those that God wants to bring into his eternal kingdom, we allow God to do his part to begin to add to our numbers daily such as are being saved. Can we thank the Lord for that and say, Lord, help us reach that sweet spot and Lord, add to your church. It's your church, Lord, those daily that are being saved. I like every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, I pray. I pray that families would find their sweet spot. I pray husbands and wives would find their sweet spot, that they would find that, that harmonious, synergistic place in their marriage relationship, where they would stop working against one another and begin to work with one another. I pray, Lord, that businessmen and businesswomen would find that sweet spot, Lord, and they would begin to operate at their optimal level of performance. I pray, Lord, for students, that they would find that sweet spot right now in their life. I pray for single people, Lord, that they would find the sweet spot of living out their faith. Lord, uh, I know that when the hard knocks of life come our way, if, if they hit the sweet spot of our faith, then it's not going to reverberate as, as negatively or badly in our life. And Lord, I pray for those that may be here in this service today that don't know Christ yet as their personal Lord and Savior. And if that's you, then you can open up your heart and receive the gift of God's forgiveness and love in your life. Right where you're seated. Just pray this prayer out loud. Say it out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth. Mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Dear God in heaven, I turn from sin and I turn to you. You are now my father and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family? We love you. Have an awesome rest of the day.